We're, of course, celebrating, remembering Palm Sunday this morning, remembering Jesus' entry into Jerusalem. I'm not going to speak directly to that because we spoke to that several weeks back uh, when we were in Matthew chapter 21. But if you recall, the, uh, the point that we made, the conclusion that we drew, was that by entering into Jerusalem the way he did, uh, Jesus effectively sealed the deal. He made it perfectly clear the choice that was before the people, and in so doing, he um, eliminated the middle ground. You were either for him or against him, with him or not with him. There was no, no middle road left. And in the, and in the text we've been looked at, looking at since then, the chapters since then, he's been making that point again and again, reinforcing the reality of that, and that will become even more clear in our text this morning. So, getting right to our text. It's a little bit longer than what we normally look at, but it's not unwieldy. Um, from verse 31 to the end of the chapter, Matthew chapter 25. But when the Son of Man comes in His glory and all the angels with Him, then He will sit on His glorious throne, and all the nations will be gathered before Him. He will separate them from one another as the shepherd separates the sheep from the goats. And he will put the sheep on his right and the goats on the left. And then the king will say to those on his right, Come, you who are blessed of my father, inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the foundation of the world. For I was hungry, you gave me something to eat. I was thirsty, you gave me drink. I was a stranger, you invited me in. Naked and you clothed me, I was sick and you visited me. I was in prison and you came to me. Then the righteous will answer him, saying, Lord, when did we see you hungry and feed you, or thirsty and give you drink? When did we see you a stranger and invite you in, or naked and clothe you? When did we see you sick or in prison and come to you? And the king will answer and say to them, Truly I say to you, to the extent that you did it to one of these brothers of mine, even to the least of them, you did it to me. Then he will also say to those on his left, Depart from me, accursed ones, into the eternal fire, which has been prepared for the devil and his angels. For I was hungry, you gave me nothing to eat. I was thirsty, you gave me nothing to drink. I was a stranger, you did not invite me in. Naked, you did not clothe me. Sick and in prison, and you did not visit me. Then they themselves also will answer, saying, Lord, when did we see you hungry or thirsty or a stranger or naked or sick or in prison and did not take care of you? Then he will answer them, saying, Truly I say to you, to the extent you did not do it to one of the least of these, you did not do it to me. And these will go away into eternal punishment, but the righteous into eternal life. Father, we thank you for your word, Lord. It's a sobering text that we read this morning. And certainly its, it's content draws our attention, and it should, Lord. So we ask for the wisdom, the inside of your, of your spirit, both as your word is, is shared and as your word is heard. In Jesus' name, amen. The chapter consists, chapter 25 consists of three large parables. They're all about Jesus' return. It begins, if you've read the chapter, you know, with the parable of the ten virgins and the matter of having sufficient oil. The point being preparation for his return. The second is the parable of the talents, the man that goes on a journey and entrusts wealth and assets to his servants, the importance being the need to be at work in the absence 
of the master. The third parable is the parable of the shepherd separating the sheep from the goats. All three of these speak to the matter of Jesus' return. Each has its own specific warning. This morning we'll focus on this third one. And what we want to do is first really clearly identify the scene that is established in the parable, then what happens in the parable, and then finally note the application that it has to our lives. So let's begin by setting the scene within the parable. In the first two verses, 31-32, we see first the Son of Man coming in glory. In other words, that's, that's His glory. That's one of those words that we use and go, well, I think what that means, but do we really know what it means? We used to have a professor at school who had the best definition of glory. He said when you, when you look up in the sky and you see that vapor trail, that long streak of, of cloud, and it's, it's wide and kind of diffused at one end and pointed at the other, and you just instinctively follow it to the point, and then if, if you still have really good vision, you'll see that small dot that is the aircraft that has left the vapor trail. We said that's pretty much how glory works. It's a visible manifestation. It's a sensory thing that points to something that you might not naturally see. The glory of God. When, they, when the Bible says His glory filled the temple, it was something visual that pointed to His existence. It's an evidence of His presence, His existence. So when the Son of Man comes in His glory, it will be very evident that He is there. When the Son of Man comes in His glory. That word, word when is an, is an interesting word. It is, I've often said that Greek words are usually made up of two words. Even the little ones are often made up of two words. And this, this word when is the word tote. Now, it doesn't get much shorter than that, right? Tote. But the first word to means the. It means the. And the second word ote means when. Now, where I tell my Greek students, you can remember that ote means when, is ote is the same as the Greek telephone company, ote. And so when you sign up for your landline, your first question is, when are you going to get it? And the answer is, we don't know. But it won't be tomorrow. It means when. So this is literally the when. That's what the word means, the when. Jesus said he did not know when he was going to come back. Only the Father knew that. So right after his ascension, Jesus' question evidently was, when am I going back, Father? And the angels asked the question, when is he going back? We asked the question, when is he coming back? Well, this is the when. This is when it happens. When Jesus comes back in his glory. And it says the angels will be with him. All the angels will be with him. We'll talk a little bit more about that. And the Son of Man will sit on His glorious throne. We talked about thrones several weeks ago. The whole idea that, that there's a real big distinction between the throne of man and the throne of God. Man builds really large, elaborate thrones. We talked about the peacock throne. If you remember in India, they say it cost more to build that throne the entire, than the entire Taj Mahal. In 150 years, it was gone. But man builds these magnificent thrones so that the person who sits on them will look magnificent. Well, Jesus' throne is just the opposite. His throne is magnificent and glorious because he sits on it. It could be one of those white plastic chairs we use in the summer. It wouldn't matter. When Jesus sits on it, it is glorious because of who he is. 
So the angels will return with him. The Son of Man will sit on his glorious throne. And then it says the nations will be gathered, will be gathered before him. So we have the entirety of the angelic host. How many angels are there? We have no idea. One part of Scripture refers to myriads of myriads, and the word myriad means an uncountable number. So you have an uncountable number to the power of an uncountable number. That would be a lot. And then you have every human being that has ever drawn a breath. That would be a lot. Standing in this incredible scene, and at that note, at that note, or at that point, rather, a separation occurs. One group is destined for eternal reward. The other group is destined for condemnation. It's especially important to note this imagery of his return at this time of year. As we, as we celebrate Easter, as we remember our Lord's suffering, death, and resurrection, we really tend to zero in on those events as we should. We should focus intently on the crucifixion, death, burial, and resurrection. But we sometimes see that as like the end. Like that's the whole reason that he came, right? And in a sense, that is true. He came for the purpose of dying for us. Matthew 20, verse 8, Just as the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and give his life a ransom for many. In one sense, yes, it's true. That is the reason he came. But in a larger sense, that's not the ultimate. That's not the final or complete end. Even as at Christmas, we always have to remind ourselves that his birth, his incarnation, only finds its full and complete meaning in his death. At Christmas, we're deliberate to talk about Easter because it is the cross, it is the grave, it is the stone rolled away that gives meaning to the manger. Even in that same sense, when we talk about the stone rolled away, we only find its complete meaning if we think about his return. Easter speaks to Christmas. His return speaks to the resurrection. Ultimately, it is that end that gives all meaning to the cross and the resurrection. We never want to disconnect those points. We never want to disconnect Jesus' suffering, death, resurrection from his return. Because if we do, we fall into that trap of thinking, well, Jesus died for my sins, I'm forgiven. He gives me his spirit so I can live in communion with him. I no longer need to fear God's judgment or condemnation. And well, his return is kind of like a perk at the end. It's like a bonus that got attached to it. And it is so much more than that. I may even come to the place that I don't even think about it very often. As a young Christian, I will admit, uh, I would hear older Christians stand up and talk about the Lord's return. And I would say to myself, well, of course they're talking about the Lord's return. They're old. What do they got left, right? They don't have much time left here. Obviously, they're thinking about Jesus' return. I was wrong in that thinking. That thinking was very immature. It wasn't just that they were old. I mean, they were old. But it wasn't just that they were old. It was that they had been around long enough to understand how important his return is. 
They had come to understand the importance of that. Just consider these, and these numbers you could, you know, argue the, the detail, but they give a pretty good picture. There are 216 chapters in the New Testament. There's 300 references to his return. One out of every 30 verses in the New Testament is a specific reference to his return. And if you look at Scripture as a whole, now I didn't do this research, okay? I didn't like count these numbers. The research is, is legitimate. Taking the whole of Scripture, there are eight times as many references to Jesus' second coming as to his first. Scripture weighs his second coming very heavily. So as our Lord is approaching his own death and resurrection, his focus is not just on that, it's on what is coming next. Not only why he's going to die in the first place. The text says in Hebrews chapter 12, verse 2, who for the joy set before him endured the cross. Even as he suffered the cross, his focus was on his return. If you think about it, if you think about it, if you want to get these two ideas kind of imbalance his first coming and his return. When a dignitary, say a, a, a government official, a president or someone, they, they go to a foreign country, they always send out an advanced team, right? You just have to do that, right? You send that out for a couple of different reasons. First, you want to make sure that everything is ready, you know, security is in place. You want to make sure that, the, you know, the man or woman has what they need, their, you know, their favorite you know, soda water or whatever. You send out that advanced team to make sure everything is ready so they're not you know, uncomfortable when they get there. But there's another purpose for that advanced team. That advanced team serves to warn the host if the host has failed to make proper preparations. If there's a matter of protocol that the host has overlooked, one of the jobs of the advanced team is to, is to make sure they know that so that they're not embarrassed when the dignitary arrives. Well, in the very same way, we can look upon Jesus' incarnation, his first coming, as Jesus' advanced team for his second coming so that when he gets here the second time, we're not caught unawares. We know what the expectations are. Again, Jesus' first coming was in many ways but a preparation from the second. And you cannot separate the two and expect to understand either one. His return is not some distant event about which we need not concern ourselves now. No, we need to concern ourselves about it now. And so Jesus speaks to it. And again, he says four things in the passage. First, he says he will come in glory. We already talked about that. That simply means everything will point to him. He will have all of his angels before him. And it's interesting, if you think about the fact that Jesus has all of the angels with him, you know, they were doing something before that point in time. Hebrews tells us that all of the angels are ministering spirits. That means they're doing something. And I don't know how that works. I have no idea how the angelic economy functions. But I can tell from Scripture, they'd all got jobs to do. They're all doing stuff. But when this moment comes, everybody's going to stop what they're doing and go where Jesus is. They're going to, they're going to, everything else in heaven is going to shut down. Every other operation of whatever is going on up there is stopping to focus on his return. So the entire angelic host is there. 
And he sits upon his throne and the nations are gathered before him, it says, and he will separate them from one another as the shepherd separates the sheep from the goats. Every human being from every place, everywhere, it's an unimaginable gathering. You cannot begin to comprehend it. But as all of humanity gathers, a, a process will begin. There will be a separating, a space left in the middle to make two groups unmistakably distinct. And, and the point being made here, at this point will be made elsewhere, but the point being made here is not so much on the judgment of the individual as the very clear distinction that will be made between the two groups. You know, I'm, I'm, not, I'm not like an expert in sheep or anything, or, or goats for that matter either. Um, and sometimes when you see, like, in a place like Greece and you see a flock out there, I have to look a long time to be able to tell a sheep from a goat, especially if the sheep don't have a lot of hair and you're looking at it. But a shepherd doesn't have any problem with that. It's the easiest thing in the world for a shepherd. There will be no difficulty. There will be no question when this distinction is made. The sheep will go to the right, the goats will go to the left, and then it gets extremely relevant for us. It says in verse 34, the king will say to those on his right, and interesting, everything is defined by relationship to him. Those on his right, those on his left, everything is defined by relationship to him. He will say to those on his right, Come, you are blessed of my Father. Enter the kingdom prepared for you from the foundation of the world. There is a kingdom prepared for us, and it is ours by inheritance. An inheritance is something you get based on your relationship to someone. It is based entirely on on relationship and the text says it has been prepared from the foundation of the world God has been working on our inheritance since before the world itself was created and what that tells me is the present plan is not plan B it's not that he tried plan A and it didn't work this has been the plan all along. That tells me that everything that has happened in my life, now I'm not blaming God for all the details of my life I've had plenty of choices that I made, and other people have made choices. But when I look at the whole of my life, the whole of my life is part of his plan A. My life to this day is part of his plan A for my life. There's nothing in it that constitutes plan B. His kingdom, which he created for our inheritance, for my inheritance and yours, has been in the work since the beginning of time. Verse 35 to verse 40, the king speaks of the good done to him by his servants, the ministering, the care, the acts of kindness. He lists all the wonderful things they've done. And then verse 37, 38, 39, the saints ask the question, when exactly did we do that? I don't remember doing that for you, Lord. And in verse 4, we read these magnificent... Mag verse 40 of this chapter is one of the most empowering expressions in our language the king says to the extent you did it to one of the least of these you did it to me now that's not establishing like a qualification to get into heaven if you want to get into heaven you got to go you know feed people that's not the dynamic here the point being made the point being made is that every time we act out of compassion and kindness 
every time we find practical expression of his love, it blesses him. You do an act of kindness, or if I do an act of kindness to a person in need, he takes it personally. Think about that for a moment. We have the capacity. God has given us the opportunity to take care of his needs. Not that he needs it, but that's how he experiences it when we do it. That's an empowering statement, if you ask me. Every time you or I respond to a human need, it brings God pleasure. That is why he could say in Luke chapter 12, verse 32, Fear not, little flock, for it's the Father's good pleasure to give you the kingdom because we have blessed him. It's an extraordinary thing to think that we can genuinely please God. You know, if we're sensitive at all, we're always in touch of how we've let him short, right? Doesn't take any difficulty at all to know that experience. I let him short again today. I fell down, I fell fell short again today. But this tells me I can do something that blesses him. Verse 41, the parable turns, the king turns to those on his left. He says, depart from me, accursed ones, into the eternal fire, which has been prepared for the devil and his angels. There is a fire. It is an eternal fire. It is equally prepared. It is there by the deliberate act of God himself, and it's designed for the devil himself and, the fall, and his fallen minions. Scripture never presents hell as anything other than very real. If you want to find something in Scripture that describes hell as a figure of speech, good luck. It's a very real state, a very real torment, but it was never intended for man. It was created for a fallen angel angel, and those who who followed him. Verses 42 through 45, the king explains why this place of torment prepared for the devil and his minions will somehow be inhabited by people. It's just as his saints have blessed him by serving those in need, so the wicked have broken his heart by neglecting those same opportunities. There's that really strange verse where in Mark chapter 14, verse 7, it's also recorded in some of the other Gospels, where Jesus says this. It took me a long time to get my head around this one. For you always have the poor with you, and whenever you wish, you can do good to them. Jesus presented to his disciples ministering to the poor, not as a burden. Can we be honest enough to say that's typically how we look upon it? Jesus presented ministering to the poor not as a burden, but as an opportunity. It's an opportunity to minister to him. And what a marvelous opportunity that is. The wicked, however, rather than respond to that, turn their back. Again, this is not talking so much as you know some kind of a qualification, whether I get in or whether I don't. It's a matter of responding to the grace and the mercy that we have received by extending that same grace and mercy to others. When we get what he has done for us, when we come to terms with what he has done for us, 
there, there should naturally be an involuntary, a, a, a completely natural desire to do good to others. And these who demonstrate by their neglect of the fellow man, by their neglect of their fellow man, the simple fact that they never got it in the first place. They never got the truth in the first place. So what does it mean to us? We talk about application. Does it mean that I better get to work and start getting involved in charities and my church and helping people? Well, that's not a bad idea, but that isn't the point. The point is that I need to be conscious, deliberately conscious of everything he has done for me, everything he is doing for me, what he has promised he will do for me, and allow that to work so deeply into my thinking that expressing his love to others becomes instinctive. That's the plan. Let what he has done for me become so much a part of who I am that my instinct is to express his love to others. That's a place I'll acknowledge I'm not there yet. But it's my hope to arrive there. It's kind of like this, and, and, and I'll wrap up with this. It's kind of like the idea of obedience. Every year when I, when, I, when I teach a class, teach the, a Greek class, I have to come to that day when I say to my students, you know, there is no word for obey in the Bible. They look at, well, wait a minute, I see it all over my English Bible. That's true. But there actually isn't a word in the, in, in, in the Greek text, the original text of the New Testament. There just isn't a word in that language for obey like we think of obey. The idea of, you know, like the parent says, I told you to do it, therefore you do it. That's not there. There's no word that means that, right? There are two words that get translated as obey. Um, the first word is, is, is pethel, and it has the idea with pressure. Pressure. You could call it influence. You influence someone to do something for you. And, and a really good place to see how that word works is when James is talking about the bit in the horse's mouth. And that's one of the, word, one of the passages of Scripture where the word obey is used. I mean, it's, it's, a, it's a reasonable translation, don't get me wrong. But the idea is you want the horse to go a particular direction, you pull on the reins, and the pressure causes the horse to move. If the horse is properly trained, you shouldn't even have to do that. You apply pressure with your leg. There's ways you influence the animal through pressure. Right? That's one form of obedience. But there's another word that is often translated obedience that is so much better. It occurs places like Acts 7.39, and that is the word ipakuo, which simply means to listen really carefully. Now again, as parents, we understand this one completely. Because we speak to our kids, and they said, yeah, I heard you. And you said, no, you didn't. You may be nodding your head. There may be some level of your consciousness that processed the word, but you did not hear me. And how do I know you did not hear me is you're not doing anything, or you're still doing what I told you to stop doing. It works both ways. The point being, the, 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 the beautiful concept of this word, I love this word, is that if you can hear what I said and not change your behavior, it's clear you didn't hear what I said. Because what I said was so clear with sufficient truth to it that if you had actually processed it, 
it would have been automatic you would have responded to it. See, that's where he wants us. And that's this picture that he's responding to, to those that enter into his joy. They have instinctively done good. They have instinctively acted out of his compassion because they got it in the first place. They heard, they saw, they processed what he has done for them, what he has done for us. I, I hope I'm communicating that. When we come to understand what he has done for us in his birth, in his life, in his death, in his resurrection, in the outpouring of his spirit, and in the promise of his return, we get that. It will become instinctive. It will become the most natural thing we could possibly do to extend his love and compassion to others. And to the extent we balk at that, such a burden being nice to people. To the extent we balk at that, it is nothing more than evidence that I still don't understand what he's done for me. So he could say, those of you who never got it, because you never acted on it, step to the left. Those of you who acted on it, that's just evidence that you got it. Step to the right. Father, I thank you for your word. Lord, sometimes your word does hits right between the eyes. This one, I think, does. It talks to us about the reality of our response, Lord. And Father, we are so comfortable with a set of rules or a set of guidelines that says you have to do this, you have to do that, you can't do this. We, we can make that work, Lord. We can really make that work, Lord. This is so much more challenging to us. But what a blessed challenging it is, Father, because we have with it the promise as we walk in simple obedience to you, as we walk with listening ears, as we ingest who you are, through your word, through our times of prayer, as we ingest who you are, through the company of your people, Father, as we gather together, we hear the testimonies of good things you've done. As we process your goodness to us, we have a guarantee, Father, that that will find expression in our lives. Oh, that's so much better than a formula. It's a promise. I pray as we go through this week, Lord, we would be deliberate in focusing on you with the confidence that you'll make good on your word. In Jesus' name, let's stand together and worship the Lord this morning.